a golden god! An equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> I don't know who's weirder, you or me. You just put the law in my hands. I'm gonna break your heart. Nobody puts baby in the Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. There is Hello and welcome back to Movies for Life. I'm one of your co-hosts, Brian Kuyper. And I'm your other co-host, Michelle Egan. And we are back with another Friends Forever favorite episode. Uh, today's guest is someone whose writing I admire immensely. One of my favorite writers on the internet uh, with Aww. bylines at Rue Morgue, Daily Grindhouse, Fangoria, Bloody Disgusting, and of course, Manor Vellum. Please welcome Mr. Pat Brennan. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. That made me very touched that you said that about my writing. I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I really mean it. I, I mean, admire your work so much. Like me, uh, most of it is sort of in the horror realm out there. But I know that you like all kinds of movies, especially when you bring a movie like you brought today. Well, this is fun. This is the first time like I, I get to talk about something other than horror, so I'm hoping not to make total ass of myself, but uh, we'll see how it goes. No, of course not. <laughs> we've had several horror writers that we've talked to, like uh, you know, Jessica Scott is primarily known for her horror writing, and she chose a movie that uh, <laughs> Neither one of, of us Sherberg could have guessed. Is, is, <laughs> Yeah, uh, and it was just like so surprising uh, to see that. And then uh, it's always fun to see what people pick. Yeah. And so on that note, what did you bring for us to talk about today? Okay, well, I brought to you Akira Kurosawa's movie, Ikiru, um, which I believe turned 70 years old this year. I think it's made. That's right. Oh, wow. 1952, which, yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, Beautiful film, kind of a soul-crushing at times, but in, like, a touching sort of way. <laughs> yeah. So it's about this um, Japanese bureaucrat, this dude who works for um, Tokyo City Hall, and he is, like, 30 years into his career as a civil servant. He has kind of, like, risen the ranks, and like any sort of government bureaucrat, his career has been kind of based on just like shuffling papers and uh, looking like he's busy, but not actually doing much of anything just, just so he keeps his position. He's barely, I don't think he's missed any time up until this point. Um, his whole life has kind of revolved around his job to the detriment of his uh, relationship with his son and basically any sort of life that he could have outside of work. Then one day he ends up finding out and horrifying fashion that he has uh, stomach cancer and at the time as is I think today stomach cancer is like pretty much a, a death sentence and especially the late stages in which his was found and he realizes that he only has about six months to live so the shock kind of 
you know, hits him like a tsunami. Like all of a sudden he, he realizes like, what have I actually done with my life? What have I accomplished? So then the rest of the movie are kind of these different avenues that he takes to kind of try and live a better life and to try and do as much as he can with the time that he has left. He's someone who's, you know, he's very buttoned down. He has all this money in the bank that he's been saving, but he does nothing with it. He doesn't drink, doesn't party, doesn't do anything. So he ends up going to a bar and getting blasted on sake, even though it's like something that (laughs) is, you know, killing his stomach. And he befriends this freelance writer who, like, learns his story and has this kind of, like, romantic idea hit him that, like, I'm going to take you out on the town and you're going to do as much living as, as you can in the next, you know, 10, 12 hours with me as, as you possibly can. Um, so they go and they, they hit the town and that's pretty sweet. Some of my favorite uh, sequences in the movie um, take part in, the, in at this time. But then the next morning, it's like he wakes up with this hangover and it's like it was fun, but it was fleeting. So then he starts to think like, well, maybe I can mend the bridges in my family that I've kind of broken down um, because of my focus on work. So he tries to connect a little bit with his son, but his son doesn't really want anything to do with them at this point. They live together, but he kind of just sees his dad as a uh, basically someone he can get some money from after he retires. So he realizes that he's kind of all alone in this. But then he befriends a former co-worker of his, this young woman who worked in his department and has since realized very smartly that uh, she's on the road to becoming someone like the main character, whose name I haven't even mentioned yet. His name is uh, Kanji Watanabe. Um, He's played by Takashi Shimura, who has been in many Kurosawa films. So he ends up befriending this young lady, and he kind of sees her as almost like a, I think, a lifeline in some ways, because she lives very joyously. She's very uh, excited about life, and um, at the same time, lives a very frugal existence because he doesn't have a lot of money, so he befriends her thinking that he can kind of, I don't want to say leech some of her vibrance (laughs) out of her, but a little bit, but also she's someone that he can care for. Like It kind of becomes this relationship where she's almost like uh, his second chance at being a a good parent. Um, Mm -hmm. So he kind of like lavishes her with all the attention and money and emotion and stuff that he didn't actually give his son when his son was growing up. And that kind of gives his life some meaning for a little bit, but then it just becomes a little uncomfortable for her. <laughs> because it, well, there's a, a whole side story involving uh, Watanabe's family thinking that he's actually sleeping with this girl. So things get a little dicey there and she ends up wanting to uh, break away from him. And that's when he realizes that... The difference that he wants to make in his life, he had the means to do it all along, and it was in the job that he had just spent 30 years kind of shuffling papers at. And he realizes that there's this um, neighborhood in Tokyo, and the uh, the families that live in that neighborhood have been trying to get this like sewage line that's been spewing sewage into this lot. Um, they've been trying to get that repaired and turned into a park, um, but no one at Tokyo City Hall will listen to them. And he kind of takes it upon himself to get this project done. And he becomes like a man possessed, basically. 
and then he dies. <laughs> um, and the yeah. movie takes a really, <laughs> the movie takes a really interesting turn structurally because up until that point, it's very much like kind of your standard narrative, like we're we're following him along this journey, and then it's as he dedicates himself to this project, then it's like. It turns into Rashomon. Yeah, yeah. We, we jump right to his his funeral, and his funeral is attended by his family and all of his coworkers and the like, the deputy mayor. And now we're seeing what um, the last few moments of his life through the eyes of the people he was working with, and they're all trying to understand what happened to him. What? No, none of them knew he had cancer because he didn't really tell anyone that he that he was dying and. All of a sudden, this very like quiet, soft-spoken, stiff man. What actually his coworker called uh, had a nickname for him. It was the the mummy because he's just kind of like he just lumbers around and mumbles to himself and stuff. Like what came over him to spearhead this project and and to get it done? And so the rest of the movie is kind of them trying to wrap their heads around his last few weeks on this earth. And yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's... No, that's, that's a great... <laughs> okay. That is a great summary. Um, I was like, someone will cut me off if I'm explaining to <laughs> It's kind of nice to sort of see where we're going right at the beginning and then kind of focus on some of these sections, you know, come back yeah. and look at them. So my question is, okay, Pat, you're, you're a fairly young guy. I'm a sprightly 35. Okay. So, you know, 10 years younger than me. Uh <laughs> So what is this movie about an elderly guy facing death and the meaning of life? I also get the impression that this movie is not something that you've seen, you know, from like forever ago. This is something that's fairly recent, unless I'm mistaken. No, not yet. Yeah. What is it about this movie in particular that speaks to you so deeply that you wanted to talk about it as one of your forever favorite movies well honestly i mean it's true like this is the quickest i've ever fallen in love with a movie like i remember halfway and i was like this is everything that I've, I've been feeling lately i i, I kind of discovered it about i think in year two of the of the pandemic and at the time i was struggling with a lot of questions about my own career sure and feelings of kind of a little like disillusionment um and i and i think you know a lot of us during the pandemic kind of had all this time to be um examining our lives and it led to you know uncomfortable moments i think for a lot of us and and that's what sure. i was having at, at yeah so that's what i was having at that time and i've always been interested in like elderly characters for some reason the other day on twitter someone was um a thing going around where people were talking about uh books that they loved that had been assigned in class. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and so I was thinking of one that I read in grade nine called The Stone Angel by Margaret Lawrence. Mm -hmm. It's it's a great novel about this, like, 96-year-old woman uh, who is about to be put into a care home, and she ends up, like, running off from her son and, like, wandering into the woods, and the rest of the book is her wandering through the woods and having flashbacks and reliving her life and coming to terms with the choices that she's made and the fact that it's, you know, it's, it's drawing to a close. And I was like the only person in my class who loved that book. I loved the hell out of it. And I couldn't understand why, but there was something in me that like really identified with this 96 year old woman. And I feel like that was happening when I watched Ikiru 
I think personally when the pandemic happened and all of a sudden I was kind of like stuck in my house and stuck in my head, I was kind of re-examining like, well, what, what have I done with my life so far? What do I want to do? Am I proud of the person that I'm becoming now? And how can I make a difference in the world? And something I really love about the movie is that the way that Watanabe ends up realizing he can make an impact is by doing something that's within his means. Like, I think, I think today, when we think about, like, legacy and impact, I, I don't know, I feel like it's a symptom of maybe, like, modern society where it's like, well, I, if I'm not, if I don't do something that's super noticeable or something that would make me, like, famous, then it doesn't really matter. And, yeah. you know, we, we attach our self-worth to the scale of our accomplishments and how many eyes are on it. So I love the fact that in this movie he realizes by helping to make this little park in this, um, I, I'm pretty sure it was like a lower income neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so, yeah. This going, yeah, this is going to be a legacy that's going to impact generations of children and will you know, be something that I can be proud of. And I, I love the fact that it's not, um, you know, it's not him at the end, like saving a bus full of nuns or like taking a bullet for the president or doing some like <laughs> some like, you know what I mean? Kind of like a big Hollywood thing that all of a sudden the world knows the name of, of uh, Watanabe. And in fact, in this case, uh, all the publicity gets stolen from him by the deputy mayor. So it's like yeah. very few people even know that he was you know, uh, responsible for this park, but except for the yeah, people that I, matter, sorry, I, the ones that it affected the, yeah. the women that show up at his wake. I love that part. Yeah. And even while he's there, while it's being constructed at the end, mm-hmm. while the actual park is being cleaned and everything and he stumbles and he falls and those women that live in the village there in this little area there, they come over mm-hmm. and they, and they help him and they bring him water and they're just caring for him you know, because he has shown care for them. It's really very beautiful the way this movie unfolds. Mm. So, I mean, even going back to the beginning, I think uh, the first part of this movie, it's really split into these three big sections, you know, where you have the mundanity of life. Then he finds out he's going to die. (laughs) (laughs) And then the second section is, what is my purpose? Is it in this? Is it in that? Uh, Can I feel better if I get wasted or is it with, you know, going to parties? Is it, you know, caring for this other person like you talked about, uh, which, you know, there are really two subsections within that there's, you know, party night. And then there's yeah. the the section with his former coworker. And then that final section, which is the others just trying to figure out what caused this drive in him. Yeah. So those three sections are just sort of beautifully constructed. But I think for me, um, the final section is probably the one that's, that hits me the hardest, but that middle section of him just trying to figure it out. I, I feel like I can relate too much to some of that. Yeah. And obviously this is very much in microcosm where it happens in a, in a short amount of time, but how often, you know, do you just kind of bump through life in various ways, trying out different things that just seem like they might bring some satisfaction, but they don't, I think is pretty powerful <laughs> and just forces one into introspection. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's one of the things yeah. about this movie uh, for me is it really makes me just kind of look at myself and why am I not content with this life that I have? Because it's pretty good if I look at it for what it really is. 
It's like, why, why do I keep on looking elsewhere to find that contentment? Even just watching uh, like the reactions or just the actions of the other characters after he finds out that he has cancer. Um, I, I love Shamira so much and <laughs> his acting in this is like mm-hmm. my favorite that I have seen so far of, of, of any of the movies I've watched. Um, Stray Dog is a close second, but um, he's mm. a phenomenal in this and just the way that he's always bowed and got his head down and just kind of showing on the outside that you know, there's a lot going on in the inside. And then seeing the way that his son and his son's wife treat him when he's got something to say, but they're not thinking about that, watching that and kind of making you realize that you need to have compassion all the time for other people because you never know like what someone is going through. You know, that's a lesson that I got from that too. Yeah. Which is another thing about the character of Watanabe is he is just so tight-lipped about everything. <laughs> Clearly, he just he wants to say, hey, you know, son, I've got cancer, but he just can't bring himself to do mm-hmm. it. And it's just like, dude, just, just say something to him. You know, this, yeah. it, will, it, will, it will heal so much between you. It will give you such opportunity to heal this relationship. Um, yeah, but it's so hard to watch that. Take something he- like that. <laughs> For his son to care exactly. about it. Exactly, You know, that scene where, like, they're just at the table and breakfast or whatever, and his son is reading the paper, and he he does want to say it's so bad, but his son has just got, I don't know, what he, he's, uh, that's when he thinks that the woman from work is, like, his girlfriend or something, and he's, like, all shocked and appalled at that and upset <laughs> with him. It's <laughs> just like, oh, my God, I just listened to him for two seconds. I know. Uh, it's hard. You just want people to actually talk to each other in this movie so much he would have had a, a much better journey <laughs> I don't, you know like he would have been remembered a lot quicker if people had actually listened to him well and i feel like that's a reflection a little bit of kurosawa's indifference a little bit to like traditional japanese culture and how you know you keep everything yeah. inside mm-hmm. and you're reserved and mm-hmm. um it's sort of anti-Ozu in that sense. You know, it's yeah. sort of, it, it butts heads a little bit with something like Ozu, where it's very much about those kinds of traditions and manners. And Yeah, uh, I find him so fascinating because I read his, um, his autobiography recently and I really yeah. respect the fact that he was someone who, like I think in his 20s, he really fell in love with kind of traditional Japanese art and kind of, realize that like kind of the beauty in some of their their customs and and their traditions while at the same time having this indifference to tradition and like there's something about that that i love i love when when someone isn't kind of either like blindly patriotic towards their country but also isn't just like completely like burying where they come from if that makes any sense it's like sure yeah that makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. yeah it makes them able to illustrate the contradictions of where he comes from really well yeah it's very much so there's so many moments i want to talk about i know me too just (laughs) yeah i find you know it's a movie that just turned 70 and yet it feels so timeless from its themes Mm -hmm. uh last week i showed this to my wife for the first time and she works for the government and that very first scene where it's like you know the the mothers come to i think it's public works and start trying to get someone to listen to them about this park 
and they get passed off to like seven or eight different yeah. departments over the course of a month. Just stand that back where they started. <laughs> Exactly. And, yeah. and it's like, oh, shit, bureaucracy has existed as long as there's been governments. And, and my, my wife mm-hmm. was watching this and she's like, okay, I'm starting to feel a bit like you're subtweeting me now and I don't have <laughs> Yeah. Well, how masterfully uh, Kurosawa sort of juggles these different kinds of storytelling in this movie is pretty incredible. Because a lot of it in the middle section, like I said, it's just following him entirely, right? Whereas here, you know, we're sort of jumping from thing to thing to thing. You're doing montage. We're hearing narration. We're hearing uh, all sorts of things that don't necessarily carry through to the end of the movie. And it's uh, just fascinating the ways he's telling the story in the different sections of the movie. Uh, and it's pretty different in all three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that he can put that all in one movie and have it feel coherent. It's incredible. Is yeah. Pretty remarkable. Well, stuff from the beginning yeah. is brought back um, in the, the last section, oh, yeah. what I, what I, which I really liked. Like something in the narration when he's talking about, you know, like this is our main character and he's basically been a corpse for 20 years and talking about the meaningless busyness of the work that he's been doing. That's something that one of the guys at the wake says later on on at the the very last section of the movie so he does kind of bring it all together in a way but just using different techniques for it which i I thought was really cool yeah oh my god there's so much that just feels so true to life the scenes involving like going out on the town and going to the um like the dance hall and everything the way it's shot it made me think of like my like younger days in my early 20s and going out to clubs and, and stuff you basically just replace dance music with jazz band and you know nothing's really changed in that sense there's that like i don't know that that feeling that you get on a night on the town you know it didn't matter which decade you're doing it it all kind of feels mm-hmm. and looks the same and I, I really think he he captures that mood really well um, trying to get just lost in a crowd and trying to forget yourself as you like move within all these people. Mm-hmm. That scene where he sings the gondola song. Um, oh my god! To the camera. <laughs> oh my god! It just gets me every god. time. I love this. <laughs> it's just like, and one of my favorite pieces of direction ever. Kurosawa told Shimura to sing the song as if you are a stranger in the world where nobody believes you, <laughs> or no nobody believes you exist. Like. <laughs> Oh, oh, man. oh my god wow. yeah that's how oh, he plays man. it too yeah. absolutely yeah. it's so crazy to me that you look at shimmer in this movie and realize that two years later he's in seven samurai and he's he's a freaking badass in that movie <laughs> yeah. he stands tall he's got authority and all these just a hundred miles away wow. in the same year he's making godzilla you know he's playing the doctor in godzilla <laughs> Uh, you know, it's just like the guy is, is just man. like absolute chameleon. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember watching some of the later Kurosawa's cause he's in like Kagamusha and stuff like that. He'll have these weird little cameos where he doesn't even have lines. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't even recognize him. I mean, for a lot of this core section, it was sort of him and Toshiro Mifune as the co-leads of the movies in a lot of ways. Yeah. But this is one of those few where there's a distinct lack of Mifune as uh, Damn it. Michelle laments. Um, <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> but, you know, the oh. fact that Shimura has given this whole film yeah. to just give one of the greatest performances ever in a movie, you know, international 
whatever. It doesn't matter. It's just simply one of the greatest performances ever given on film. And it's it's just remarkable what's going on here. Yeah. He's so quiet. Mm-hmm. And the moments where, like that, that scene where he um, he's getting ready for bed, and then he's winding up his uh, alarm clock, and you can just see the lo- like what's going through his head. I'm winding up this alarm clock so it can wind down. I'm winding down, and mm-hmm. like he jumps into his bed and starts like quietly crying, which that sound just oh my god! At first, before you hear the crying, it was almost comical because it reminded me of being a little kid and shutting off my light and then jumping under the covers because I'm afraid of Yeah, because he like hides under the covers, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you just start hearing the sobbing and it cuts to the um, the close-ups of his like certificates of accommodation for like 20 to right. 29 years mm-hmm. of service. And, I took uh, that moment because he's setting the alarm for like the next day and I took it as like he's getting scared because it's a reminder of time and how much time he has left and how much time he's wasted. And that's what kind of causes him to start on his, his little journey too. Yeah, I love that moment with him. For me, there's some, and I can't fully grasp what the metaphor fully means, but the hat. They make <laughs> yeah. such a big deal about the new hat. Yeah. You know, and then by the end of the movie, the hat is just it's just sort of this relic. It's it's been beaten up as much as anything else. Yeah. It's it's just fascinating that the hat has this deep significance that I just can't quite put my finger on and put into words, but I sense it. I know it somehow what it all means, you know? Mm. <laughs> it's one of those kinds of symbols. Yeah. I wonder if it's kind of like, I don't know, when we try to escape in, to, you know, like, um, uh, what, what do they call it? Uh, retail therapy. And it's like you try to <laughs> sure, make sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm quite guilty of that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> but um, I was just pointing to things on my wall um, for the people who can't see what's happening. But um, <laughs> this idea that he's like, he's trying to escape into something. So he buys this new hat and becomes obsessed with this new, <laughs> this new hat. And... Uh, and at the end of the day, it's just, it's something, you can't take it with them. Like, it's left behind and gathering dust. Uh-huh. In this case, I guess, snow, because he dies in the park. Yeah. And then I guess maybe there's, like, a fashion aspect. Oh, yeah. The, I, I think I fell in love with this movie just seeing the the, the cover of the um, Criterion release. Like, just seeing that, that cover, uh-huh. I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, this movie's going to get me. <laughs> <laughs> and. It's one of the few Criterion releases that when they upgrade it, they don't change the cover because the cover is perfect. Yeah. Just him sitting on, on the swing in the snow. That is the image from this movie. Which I kept, and, when I was watching it for the first um, time, I kept waiting for that. I was like, well, when is this coming up? And the way that it comes up is like absolutely perfect. Yeah, it's a great encapsulation yeah, of, yeah. of what the movie is. That was such a visceral shot because like i've sat on a swing with the snow coming down like in a in a playground you know and like in my youth and i could just hear the sound of the stillness and and the sound of the snow kind of gently falling down around you and and it just uh, captures that so well and i'm pretty sure that was just like icing sugar or something if i remember correctly <laughs> it was <I'm> sure. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Kurosawa's use of weather at, at any time, you know, is always significant, right? Um, I think an, another key image is they show this is in a flashback in the third section, and those flashbacks are all so short. 
I, I had yeah. forgotten how brief each one of those was. But when he goes and sort of sees the neighborhood and sees this literal shithole, he stands there and he just sort of walks out into it on his own. And then this woman follows him with an umbrella because it's in the pouring rain and everything. Yeah. And, and it's just sort of this caring for this person. You see how quickly this neighborhood sort of gathers around him because they see he's there to really make something happen. Finally, after all these years, they just become very protective of him so very quickly. The The beauty of all that, I think, is is really powerful. There's something almost envious, too, about how he starts to live his life not really caring. There's certain consequences that all of a sudden just don't matter. Like, I love that confrontation he has with, with like, the Yakuza, like, thug who tries to intimidate him. And he's just, he just smiles in his face, like, what are you going to do to me? Like, I'm going to die anyway. But they don't know that, so he just looks like he's yeah. nuts, which, I, which is kind of great. <laughs> Well, and then, you know, he tells off what the the deputy mayor and everything, because he spends so much of the time in that middle section after he finds out about his cancer, either being sad and sort of just sorry for himself or and just depressed. And then when he figures it out, is like, you know, I can really do something because I'm going to die anyway. So what does it matter what anyone else thinks of me at this point? Yeah. Then, of course, at his wake, you know, someone says, well, any of us could die at any moment, which is, of course, the point of the movie, yeah. right? That it's not just someone who is terminally ill. It's not just someone who's old. It's... We're all winding down. Yeah. I mean, in, in whatever way, or, or you could be crossing a street somewhere in a city and just out of nowhere yeah. get hit by a car or something like that. I mean, there, there are all kinds of things that happen you just don't know when it's going to happen all i can think of is that homer simpson yeah. quote where he's like trying to comfort bart about i forget what it was but he's just like gets in his face and he's like why you could die tonight in your sleep good night and then walks off like <laughs> yeah. realization just washes over him <laughs> i think that's one of the sideshow bob episodes yeah <laughs> yeah it's interesting too how like there's a positivity to the movie through most of it but mm -hmm. it's not overly romantic i find like i i love the fact that one of the last things we see is all his co-workers just blitzed out of their mind and being like don't forget this feeling tomorrow's gonna be different we're gonna uh -huh. do this and then immediately yeah. it's just you know they're all back to doing the same the same things and the status quo and, and all that except yeah. for one guy who who might be thinking of the that. one guy yeah yeah and, yeah and you could see that this has affected him more deeply than it has these other people because he seems pretty sober-minded even during the wake because while they're all doing that and crying in their sake he's sort of kneeling at Watanabe's picture and just mm -hmm. sort of looking up at it and just trying to let that penetrate his soul. Yeah. And that, that last shot, you know, because, I mean, he stands up, he's going to do it, and he's going to stand up for it, and then he grabs a stool and he sits down. I, that's just, like, uh, it's so heartbreaking. And then it ends, of course, with him, you know, going and seeing this playground that has been created and the, and the children that are all just having such a wonderful time. And he's standing and he's watching this, and then he's walking on and that's the way it ends and it leaves us to wonder what is he gonna do what are we gonna do you know mm -hmm. i mean i think that's supposed to be the stand-in for the audience at that moment where it's like now what now what you've seen this 
yes, it's a fictional story, but this this kind of thing happens and you know it does. What now for you? It's devastating. This movie has forced me into my own head pretty hard, <laughs> yeah. you know, over the past couple weeks here because I, I sort of watched it in a couple of sections, to be honest, because we were originally going to record, record last yeah. week. And so I had watched the first part and I wasn't able to finish it. So I watched the third act last night and I'm just like, good God, (laughs) what have you done? done? What have you done to me? No, no, this movie is a freaking masterpiece and I'm happy to see it again. Believe me. Yeah. That last scene where you think that those guys are going to turn a corner and then it ends up that they don't i was really devastated and like hurt by that i was like this should have like a more uplifting like hopeful ending but kind of thinking about it it almost does in a way it's just another message that you have to read into it because it's like they don't have the same kind of courage or motivation that he had to actually make those changes i think maybe what the message is is like don't wait until you're facing death to realize these Mm -hmm. things about yourself Mm -hmm. you can do something now even if it doesn't feel like it's that impending important important you know you can still make some kind of little difference if you just try if you just do something don't fall into the the routine that he did for 30 years that's a good message (laughs) even though it is kind of downbeat and like inspiring at the same time to me that's how i read it now 100 percent. i think it was in um roger ebert's review of this movie he said and i'm not sure if this was his original review or i know that like around the end of his life he went back and kind of rewatched some of the uh, his favorite movies and, and wrote about them but he had said that um he thought Akira was the, one of the few movies that could actually make someone want to change their life. Yeah. Um, which hearing that from someone yeah. who watched like probably like a hundred thousand movies in his lifetime or something, that's yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, um, it's funny that you mentioned that it was the um, his coworker on the bridge. Like I didn't I didn't catch that. I just thought it was yeah. there was two things I thought. It's either it could represent some random salary man is like walking across the bridge either on his way to work or from ho- or back home he, you know he's seeing these children now every day playing at this park and he's seeing kind of the freedom that they have and maybe seeing that and remembering what that felt like could spark something within him to do something different if he was unhappy um or it was like you know kind of the ghost of of Watanabe kind of watching over his, you know what I mean? <laughs> like an echo of Watanabe. Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I, I got... I, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was assuming it was because that shot where he, you know, he grabs a stool and he sits mm-hmm. back down and then the camera just descends behind the Oh, paper. I love that shot. Yeah. That's so perfect. Yeah. Uh. Behind this piles. And and so I would I assumed that it was drawing yeah. that connection, that it was that, that character Me too. Um, <laughs> on the bridge. Just their office is such a great representation of all that. Those piles and piles of paper everywhere just being buried under all of that bureaucracy and busy work yeah. and stuff that doesn't really mean anything ultimately in life. Uh, uh, I couldn't work in a place like that. My God, I yeah. just feel like it was closing in on you all the time. Right? Yeah, there, there's a lot of images that can kind of just feel like gut punches that, that one moment at the very beginning where he... Uh, he opens up his desk drawer and you just see like a project from 20 years ago that he had had mm-hmm. that ultimately got shelved and he just mm-hmm. pulls a piece of paper out of it to use as, as scrap paper. It's right. just 
gut-wrenching, both because of that situation and then also, like, if, you know, if anyone out there who has, like, you know, a quarter of a novel written and stored exactly. in their, in yeah. their desk, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, oh, yeah. god damn it. Can you just <laughs> chill out, Akira? <laughs> it's like a remnant from the days where he was passionate about mm-hmm. his work. Yeah. It's like, ways we can make this more efficient, I think, is what the... Yeah thing is it's almost like <laughs> this is a crude um analogy but like uh, jerry Maguire's manifesto uh you know how <laughs> that's kind of like what i thought it would be it would be something like that you know how we can make this uh, really work for people yeah it's hard not to be ground down by the machine mm-hmm. you know because like i'm a teacher and no one goes into teaching because they want to take all the professional development and do all the busy work we're required to do and common core and no child left behind and whatever other bureaucratic bullshit uh, gets sent down the pike to us. You know, you get into teaching because you want to shape young minds. You want to leave your mark on kids, you know, in, in a good way, you know, you want to be the positive influence that may, they may not have at home or, or whatever it is. That's why you do it. You know, or for me, I'm a music teacher because I love music and arts and I, I want kids to see how awesome they can be. But you can just find yourself just getting eaten by the wheels of the machine and just sort of squeezing the blood out of you to want to do any of that. And I've seen so many teachers just say two things. (laughs) Either they quit or they continue teaching in sort of that dead state. Like we see Watanabe here where he's just a zombie. Mm -hmm. He's a mummy just going through the motions of it all. Yeah, he... It's interesting that, you know, when he opens the drawer and sees that thing, he's so dead inside that he doesn't even have a moment where he's like, oh, I remember that guy. He just sees it as another piece of paper he can grab. Yeah. He's so right. worn down by the, the cycles that he's gone through. I feel like that's life in general. Like it can, it just, uh-huh. there's so much that like, you know, you have, you, you have so much idealism when you're younger and then when you start to realize that like, you know, things don't always work out the way you think that they're going to, it's... I think holding on to your optimism and your like urge to do things and your passion gets like harder and harder as you get older, yeah. or at least it does for me. Maybe this is a really depressing no. window to my soul. <laughs> I, I feel the same way. <laughs> but uh, you know, one of the things I also love about this movie, though, is it's not like anti the work you know it's his purpose is found in in his job like you said that thing that's within his grasp it's just doing it with purpose and doing it like martin luther king said you know you may be a street sweeper but if you do that sweep streets the way that shakespeare wrote sonnets or that uh, beethoven composed symphonies right you know just I, I love that image and, and I get kind of chills when I think about that image because, you know, I probably, I don't think I'm ever going to produce anything that will be remembered the way Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is. That would be highly <laughs> doubtful. Well, you never know. But at the same time, maybe some kid that I teach will. Yeah. Or uh, even if that doesn't happen, maybe, you know, they'll go home and they'll decide, you know, I think... I want to play guitar like Mr. Kuiper, so I'm going to I'm going to learn how to play guitar and it's just going to give me pleasure in life. Exactly. Yeah. And is is isn't that just as good? Yeah. 
or even better maybe. And I think that's part of what I love about this is, is it's not saying that what he's doing is worthless. It's saying that what he does in the way he's doing it is worthless until he does it with purpose and does it, you know, and he, and he does this job the way that Beethoven composed symphonies or whatever analogy you want to use uh, or the way Kurosawa makes movies right. <laughs> we could definitely say um, and that message is so inspiring and like you said it's it's this hopeful downer of a movie yeah what I really like about the structure of it you know like you said it was kind of weird that it's mostly him and then like the last what is it the last hour or something is like when mm-hmm. he's died and it's people about, yeah yeah mm-hmm that's where I think like the real power and the message of the movie is, is like you do see him in like little flashbacks and how other like the stories that other people tell about him, which I kind of love some of those, like those shots of him just sitting there in this guy's office, like just waiting for them to do something. He's like, I'm not going to leave until you like do your job, what I want you to do, but not being like so uh, intimidating about it, but just sitting there. Showing them that mm-hmm. he's not going to leave. I love. He's being himself. I, I know still. he hasn't changed who he exactly. is at his core. Exactly. You know? I I yeah. love that. But I love that that last that pretty much that whole last section to me is is the most important because it's all about ultimately how do you want to be remembered and what impact are you going to have on people? I mean, he does have impact on people throughout the movie. I love the section with the writer the first person that he meets on, on his night out, he has such an impact on that guy. Mm-hmm. And he tells him that he has, that mm-hmm. guy has one of my, has my favorite quote uh, of the whole movie. And it's, um, it's our human duty to enjoy life. We have to be greedy for mm-hmm. life. Yeah. They say greed is a vice, but that's outdated. Greed is a virtue, especially greed for enjoying life. I fucking love that quote. Cause that's, a, that's absolutely perfect. I keep saying like, that's what the movie, yes. is about. there's like so many things that the movie is about, but that is definitely one of them. So it's all about the impact that you have on people while you're here. Even just one person, if one person remembers you in, in a fond way when you're gone, like maybe that's all I really need and want, you know, I, that's, that's kind of my fear. That's why I was feeling so much like, like his character, especially at the beginning, just not being seen and feeling like, like, Oh, I'm going to die in six months. If I were to die right now, like, would anybody care or remember me? Like that's something that I've definitely struggled with and thought about. And yeah, the end is just about like, try and do something while you're here and try not to be forgotten. Maybe like do the the littlest, smallest thing that you can and someone will remember you fondly. And that's maybe that's all we really need in life to get through. Yeah. It. And don't undersell yourself. Like what you are, yeah, doing what you can it. do. Yeah. Yeah. I pretty much worked in customer service all my life. I mean, I work at an academic library now, but it's basically just like a circulation desk. I worked in cafes all throughout college and stuff, and it's, I feel like it's just a glorified cafe job. Now, instead of throwing coffee to people, I'm throwing their books. But I always used to find like your attitude affected your day so much and the Absolutely. way that you saw that at work. Yeah, Especially in like, customer service, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Trust me. A hundred percent. And it's because, I, you know, you get sometimes you get like younger people who haven't, you know, had a lot of experience in, in the workforce or whatever, and it can be crushing dealing with the public. And it becomes this thing where it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like they start getting very like pessimistic going into work. So then they act shitty to customers and then the customers are shitty to them. 
And then they're like, oh, look how shitty the customers are being. And it's like, well, did, did you want a round of applause because you were like, were super aloof and didn't greet them and didn't get their order right? And you know what yeah. I mean? Like in cafes, I used to pride myself in my ability of like breaking down our grumpiest customers and making them like my best friend, basically. Right. And like, you just have to give a shit just a little bit and just listen and just keep doing that. And you have no idea how much that like, you know, it'll, it'll make your world better, but it also, you have no idea how much that will impact somebody, especially if they're seeing Absolutely. you every day, like all of a sudden you're there. Yeah. You're there like kind of a bright spot in their day sometimes. And that's just, I feel like the movie is just about, well, about many things it's about, like is the ripple effect that we have in other people's lives and understanding mm-hmm. that it's, it's really just simple actions that you can take each day can really benefit a lot of people around you. Yeah. You know, it's making me suddenly think about all these movies that I really love that kind of have this theme. I was <laughs> talking with Michelle. It's like, I think I'm going to go see everything everywhere all at once again today. One of the things is, you know, there it's multiverses and stuff like that, but it's really just telling this very human story about loving the existence you have. And being grateful for what you have. I, there's one of my favorite lines in the movie is there's this alternate universe where the main couple are not together and they're rich and they're successful separately. And he just turns to her and says, in another life, I would have loved just doing laundry and paying taxes with you. <laughs> and that's what they do in the main universe that we know them in. And I, and I think that is such a beautiful image of that, you know? And then I think about like what you were just saying about just having that impact on one person, the Alexander Payne movie uh, about Schmidt starring oh. Jack Nicholson, that movie absolutely devastates me in a way that's very much like a Kiru. The final narration just kills me because all the way through the movie, he's been writing. To, he, he like sponsors a kid in a third world country and he's writing to him like absolute deep truths that will surely fly over this, <laughs> you know, six year old's head. But he says, you know, sooner or later I will die and then everyone I ever knew will die too and then no one will remember anything that I even existed. And at the end, he gets this letter from this kid that's like translation, you know, written by one of the nuns or something like that, telling him how much he has meant and what kind of difference he has made to this one kid that he has never met. And the last shot is just Nicholson looking at the camera with tears in his eyes. I've never seen Jack Nicholson emote like that. And it's, I think it's one of his best performances. That movie just kills me every time jack nicholson crying is is like if you ever need to you know just get it all out and in one session there's a, a really great like short little clip of someone asks him about the impact of uh, roger corman in his life and he breaks down bawling because he's basically it's like i would not be here if it was if it wasn't for roger corman like i owe everything to him and he like gets so emotional and like lovers and i'm like Jack, no. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it's true, though. Oh, my gosh. I did this whole research thing on, on Roger Corman and yeah, that was the impact that he had on, yeah, the stuff that he had, Jack Nicholson and Bruce Dern and uh, Peter Fonda and, and these people, you know, in that Dennis Hopper, people in that 
sort of group is so huge. <laughs> the people that created the new Hollywood essentially were created by Roger Corman. And it, it's incredible. Anyway, we're getting a little <laughs> off off topic probably. But but again, it's that impact, you know, the impact that one person can have on others um, and the ripple effects that take place when you do your work or, you know, your life, mm-hmm. I should say, with with purpose and passion and with a sense of meaning behind it all, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, in that way, too, I also see the character. Um, I didn't catch her name. I saw it on Wikipedia. Uh, uh, Toyo, yeah. the woman that uh, he spends time with, with his yeah. co-worker, mm-hmm. she actually kind of has a similar thing that he does. Like, I think she's not really realizing the impact that she's having on him. You know, she's presented. I, I love her for one thing. She's always all smiles and yeah. bub- oh, she, bubbly yeah, and, and mm-hmm. jovial and just always enjoying life and food and movies. That The scene of them at the movie theater is so great because she's just got the biggest smile on her face. Uh, we yeah. have no idea what they're watching, but she's loving it. And he's falling asleep, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> Too real. And that's what he's attracted to um, about her is just is her life and her, her love and, mm-hmm. and joy of life and him wanting to experience that, I think, just like for one day, he says, which uh, kind of freaks her out a little bit. <laughs> you know, that scene is kind of sad when she kind of starting to back off and like, I don't know, this is this is too much for me because she says something, too, in that she's like, all I do is work and eat, you know, like I don't really do anything important in, in my life. So she doesn't see the importance that she, she has. In that scene, too, when uh, they're kind of just at this restaurant and there's like a birthday party going on and you see her kind of like looking longingly at the people having fun or there's a couple that kiss in the table next to them. I saw that at first of her being like, oh, look at them. They're having fun or they have a couple. I'm stuck here with this this old guy. I don't really know what he wants from me. But it also Mm -hmm. could be like that she wants that same stuff, too. Like maybe she doesn't actually have anybody in her life and she's feeling the same things that that he's feeling but at the same time like the way that she expresses herself on the outside is still an inspiration for him so i i took her character even as being like even if you're not feeling it you can still be an inspiration for somebody and that's pretty cool too 100 percent. i feel like she's one step ahead of him in so many ways whereas like mm-hmm. whether it's um kind of understanding the bullshit of, of the bureaucracy that yeah, she's initially absolutely. working into. To like the restaurant scene where, where she has that line about um, the toy dogs that she's yeah. making and she says like right. I'm, I'm making I'm like I'm making, making best friends, friends with, with every baby these. in Japan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah which is so adorable. And like I wonder if that's one of the moments where something clicks in Watanabe's head where he realizes absolutely. like yeah. yeah, she's great. I feel like she's so modern for that time. Just the fact that she's like, she's, you know, outspoken and mm-hmm. like loud and boisterous and full of life and stuff. She, it's, um, yeah, she's a great character. She really is. Um, I think, you know, he's trying so hard to keep up with her. Yeah. Uh, and he, when he sort of realizes that he can't, it's very sad. But at the same time, he is just kind of like, you know, it's okay. You know, he he suddenly has that epiphany and there's this, it's never too late moment where, you know, as he's leaving the restaurant, they're singing happy birthday, uh, not too subtle, uh, (laughs) symbol there, but it's just like this idea that, you know, even at this late stage, 
it's a new birth. It's a new life. And it is not predicated on these new experiences that he's trying. It's something else. I I think he's grateful for having experienced all those things Mm -hmm. in some sense. I think he takes with him what he learned from his time with, with the young woman and stuff. And I love, you know, just this idea of him because he's really like, I, I, I need to, he's learning to think beyond himself, to live beyond himself during those scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's just noticing, oh, she's got torn stockings and, you know, I, I can afford that. That's easy for me. And so he just takes care of that. He's just like, I have the means yeah. um, here. And it's, there's, it's, it's innocent, though it's not seen as innocent from the outside. I think he's pretty pure in heart oh, in yeah. the way he's approaching yeah. this in general. I, I don't I don't get a creepy <laughs> vibe from it. But at the same time, when he realizes that he just has nothing in common with her. But I think in a sense, uh, she may make him feel like when he first met his wife and yeah. um, f- feel that youthfulness and connection to that youth. And also, like you were saying, you know, this opportunity to be sort of a parent that he wasn't before. There's a lot going on in that whole sequence that I have yet to entirely (laughs) unpack (laughs) Um, because there's a lot going on. That also has one of my favorite shots um in the movie like after he gets her the stockings and they're they're on the street Mm -hmm. and she kind of walks behind him a little bit because she's like awkward and and embarrassed about it because she's just feeling the the awkwardness of his kindness and doesn't really know what to say and so she makes it like i'm sorry for making that little joke i love that shot of her like behind his back and kind of like what are you doing (laughs) it's so cute yeah i love when he takes her to the uh the like Plinko arcade mm-hmm. initially was introduced to by the by the writers. So of course the first thing he wants to do to like it's kind of like a little kid being like look at this cool thing I found and I feel like she's like yeah yeah this is something I do I'm young and I know what these things this are. This is old school <laughs> yeah for me. He's yeah. like look at this you put the thing in and then it goes do 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 it's crazy. <laughs> It's it, it would be like me showing my kids how to play pong. Yeah. I get <laughs> or something like that. You yeah. know? It's just so cute. Hey, look, Super Mario Brothers. This is so cool, isn't it? It's like where's all the three D Yeah, it's it's so pure. <laughs> yeah, this movie has so many great moments. Yeah. <laughs> the one that like broke my heart the most, I think. I just wanna don't wanna forget this one. And when he's talking to the writer guy at the bar. And he's the first person that he tells about his cancer is a total stranger at the bar, which, yeah. you know, is, is actually relatable. I mean, it's always easier to talk to a stranger than to someone that is really close to you about that kind of stuff. I mean, that's Twitter. Absolutely. Yeah. But that, oh my God, that shot where Watanabe is like looking kind of hurt at first. And the guy asks like, does your stomach hurt? And he goes, no, not my stomach. And just puts his hand on his heart. I was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. That, oh my God. Every single time <laughs> that got me. Oh, Again, man. just Shamira I... just being, yeah, one of the best performances ever. Like just that little moment can just killed me. <laughs> then, you know, the contrast of singing the life is brief song, you know, mm-hmm. when he sings it in the middle of the bar, the, it is so yeah. depressing. It is so dark and, and just like the way other people react to down. him. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then, but then him, him singing it on the swing. Yeah. 
is just so pure and beautiful and profound. It yes. makes you. It makes you feels like yes, yes, it is, it is. <laughs> and then, then the tune, the tune plays again when the man's on the bridge at the end of the film, and it's just such a lovely tune. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like he's coming to terms with. Like I had this mentor of mine a few years ago who. Um, she is in, I think, in her 80s, but you'd think she was like in her late 50s. She's the most like vital, exuberant person I've ever met. Sure. And and I remember we would have these really frank discussions about things. And I and I asked her at one point, we were talking about death, and, and I was like, are you scared? She was like, I'm in the back nine. Yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah. And she was like, Patrick, death is the safest thing in the world. Like, there's nothing for me to be afraid of. It's the safest thing in the world. It took me a long time to understand what she's, what, like, I was like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> but I, I found after, like, in that moment on the swing where he's singing, you know, he's singing the gondola song, and it's like, he understands that life is this kind of, um, like, he's, he's getting to the end of it, and there's a beauty in, in the end, or there can be, and it's it's kind of like it's there's part of, that's part of the experience of life, and you can... Even in some of like our darkest moments, you can kind of bring some beauty out of that and some some meaning and and just kind of like go with the flow of you know our beginnings, our middles, and our ends. I guess it's that you know that whole you know it's not the destination, it's the journey. Mm-hmm. Not sure if I'm making any sense. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, making, totally. you're making total <laughs> sense. Yes, the real swing. The real park uh, was the friends we made along the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I couldn't help. Um, <laughs> great. Great. Got to lighten the mood somehow, right? Um, <laughs> so, Pat, you said you had uh, some other notes. What are there other things that you want to make sure we yeah. cover? Um, yeah, I guess there's. <laughs> it's depressing, but the the sequence where he. It's kind of like the, the montage of him remembering all these moments from mm-hmm. his relationship with his son that. while he's, yeah, while he's repeating his yeah. son's name in the dark, yeah, either out loud or within himself. Yeah. Oh, it's so masterfully cut. And he communicates this complicated relationship so quickly and so thoroughly that, like, mm-hmm. I remember at the, mm-hmm. initially when you hear how, like, kind of dismissive his son is towards him it like really riled me up and then after that montage it wasn't that i approved of how he was speaking to his father but it was like i kind of get how he got here it's it's a really great moment in terms of adding this depth to watanabe's character like he's you know he's sad and he's a tragic figure but he's no angel obviously like it's the that moment where his son is getting his you know appendix out and he asks his dad to you know, you stay with me during the operation. And he's like, I have some things to do. <laughs> it's basically what he says. It's like, holy God. And it really made me, I'm a father, and it, it ma- really made me think about my relationship with my son. Like, I've never, you know, he's, he's not even four yet, and, I've, I, and I would never leave him on an operating room to go shuffle papers at City Hall or anything. Right. <laughs> but it does make you think about, once again, the ripple effects of your relationship with your kids and how, you know, the, the way that we speak to them and the interactions that we have with them on a day-to-day basis will impact the kind of person they are later on and impact your relationship and it's like 
really difficult. <laughs> it's really difficult to watch that. <laughs> yeah, and it only gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's only, uh, oh, Good news, man. Pat. It the, gets worse. The, yeah. Yay. Yeah. It, it, it's just it's just one of those things that you know I I look back on certain times it's like you know if only I had been more present when they were little or if only uh, I hadn't said this or that and you know my kids are all teenagers now or pretty much teenagers so it's just you know would would they have this or that struggle. If, and it's like, you just got to remember, it's not all your fault. You know, it's not, <laughs> it's not all you, yeah, <laughs> you know, right. uh, obviously we can shape our children in all kinds of different ways, but when it comes down to it, I think just letting them know they're loved, right? Yeah. That's another sad moment at the end of that little montage when he's remembering all these things after he's just come home and heard them talking about, you know, how they're going to spend his money <laughs> pretty much after oh, he dies, right. oh, which is horrible. But he's still, yeah, wanting that connection with him. And when he hears his son like calling for him, he runs all to the bottom of the stairs and all of his son says is, you know, make sure you lock the door. And just, uh, just the the devastation uh, you can see on his face. Uh, uh, Kurosawa was yeah. pretty good. <laughs> I, I think he's got a career. And it's amazing how brief a time Kurosawa was revered as the great Japanese filmmaker in his own country. And it was really from Rashomon to Redbeard, which isn't that long of a time. Uh, 1950 to 1965. Yeah. After that, it's like the guy couldn't get arrested in that town. You know, I mean, he had to go to foreign uh, uh, investors to get, yeah, to get anything made. And you think about the late era works of Kurosawa are just magnificent, but they were no budget. Uh, Like you said, you know, Dersu Azala was made with Russian money. It's it's just devastating to think this great master made Ron because the Godfather and Star Wars were successful, you know, not because of anything he had done. <laughs> it's it's what and the, Ron is a absolute freaking masterpiece. Mm-hmm. How many filmmakers can you truly say have more than one masterpiece? Legitimate <laughs> masterpiece. And you look at Kurosawa, <laughs> and it's easier to name movies that are not masterpieces than ones that yeah. are. Because there are just so many yeah. movies that are, for me, just like five-star perfect films. I think, and yeah. that innovative and pushed forward and, and did all these incredible things. I am in awe of his body of work. And the more I see it, because I'd only seen Akiru once before. And I liked it a lot, but I don't think it got to me the way I thought it would. And when I watched it this time, I was just like, okay, yeah, this, yeah. I think the structure or something kind of threw me, but this movie is, again, it's, it's a masterpiece. I thought I already had my favorite Kurosawa uh, with Rashomon, but uh, <laughs> damn, I don't know. <laughs> he he worked in so many different like genres that it's like, it's, it's so hard yeah. to, it's so mm-hmm. hard to choose. Cause I mean, anyone for me, like, I think this is my favorite, but then I think, well, like, Yo Jimbo is pretty sick or even just, um, uh, Drunken Angel, that mm-hmm. one gets me so hard. Talk about um, how much of a chameleon Takashi Shimura was. Like, I couldn't believe they were the same person watching those two movies, like, kind of back to back. I think I did watch them back to back. 
I'm yeah. surprised that he never really did like I guess Throne of Blood is it's got some horror elements to it, especially that freaking ghost that's kind of yeah i know which is like horror and also i was re-listening to the the score to throne of blood recently and like i'm someone who generally like my poor neighbors like i I collect film scores and a lot of them are horror and i'll just play them while i like do the dishes and my neighbors just get so used to hearing like screeches strings (laughs) and screams and, and stuff um, and that stuff doesn't affect me, but I tried listening to Throne of Blood's score the other day, and I, it was a beautiful sunny day, and I was walking down the street to the farmer's market, and I was like, I'm getting really creeped out right now. I'm getting goosebumps. I can't listen to Yeah. This. I don't think I want to listen to this ever again. Yeah, I mean, you, you could just right. go through it. You know, I mean, Yojimbo, Sanjiro, yeah. uh, High and Low. I mean, you know, you have sort of his westerns and you like Seven Samurai and stuff, and then you have... Bad sleep well. You have like a noir film. Well, and then high and low, sort of this um, pulp novel turned into this magnificent piece of film. Um, and then the Shakespeare films. I really like Throne of Blood and Ron. Uh, admit I haven't seen the Bad Sleep Well yet. That's his Hamlet adjacent film. Yeah. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah, I think just Cop- incredible work. Coppola had a, a quote about. Um... Basically, it's like which films are masterpieces and which are just excellent. Something along those lines. Right. So it's, it's like looking at the discographies of people like Bob Dylan or Springsteen or the Beatles, and you look at these like albums that were just released like back to back to back to back to back, and you're like, how did you just do all of this? And, and, right. That you just <laughs> opened your head and all this stuff just came out. Like, how does that work? That doesn't yeah. happen anymore. <laughs> yeah. Even you think of some like, Kagamusha, which is not a masterpiece, but it's it's still better than a lot of people's best movie. And I'm, I'm just more in awe of his films every time I revisit them and just incredible stuff. I'm glad I finally started watching them. <laughs> Thank you, Brian, <laughs> by the way. Oh. <laughs> yes. He likes to take credit yeah, for who, uh, introducing me I to do. Kurosawa. <laughs> and, Godzilla. and Godzilla, yes. <laughs> Both masterpieces in their <laughs> own way. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> I definitely wasn't expecting to find this kind of diversity in his his filmography, like, no. just of what I've seen. So I've loved pretty much everything I, I've seen. And I, I still have a lot more to catch up on, but I'm sure I'm going to find even more favorites. And it's going to be even harder to pick my favorite, even though I still want to say I don't like that. It, like the first one, I, I want to say the first one I okay. saw is my favorite, but I love Rashomon so much. And this one. So what I was gonna do was I was gonna I was gonna say this. Okay, you know, lightning round. Don't think about it. Just say it. Uh, the building that holds Kurosawa's filmography is on fire. Yes, I'm <laughs> stealing this from Pure Cinema. <laughs> Not the decade, just the filmography is on fire. What are you saving, Pat? What are you saving? Just one of them. Uh, just one. Just one. You only get one. I guess I hear. I think I hear. Yeah. Yeah. yeah someone, someone else is gonna get seven, 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 seven samurai. I'm gonna get Rashomon. <laughs> You're going to get Rashomon and I'm going to get Ron. Perfect. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so there, there we go. Do you know what? Weirdly enough, the first thing I did think of was, um, I can't pronounce it, but it's his first color film. Oh, Dodeska Den? Yeah. I love that movie. <laughs> That's interesting. And it's weird that, that is a weird movie. What is it? It is so weird. Yeah. It's called Dodeska Den. It's, it's this kid who, who like pretends to be a car and you know, as he's so, so the sound he makes when he's pretending to be a car is Dodeska Den. Dode, do, okay. I can't even say it over. 
it like follows the lives of all these folks in Tokyo who are living in kind of like I think below in the, the poverty line, yeah, in the in the slums. And, yeah, but it's like. I don't know. I find those characters really compelling. And then also his use of color in that it's because it's unbelievable that it took him that long to make a yep. color picture. He really milks it for everything. Yeah. It's be- It's beautifully done. I've only seen it once. It's one that I will no doubt revisit. Um, <laughs> Cause I'm, I have a feeling I'm going to be doing one of my watch throughs is going to be the entire filmography of Akira Kurosawa. Yeah. I hadn't actually watched one in a while in my journey through Kurosawa before uh, we had to do this. So thank you for getting me back into it. I'm I'm ready to go hey. watch some more of his. No problem. I'm really glad that, yeah, we finally did this. I've been like looking forward to it. My poor wife, like I just, I've gotten really into Kurosawa and just like Asian cinema in general. And like, I'm constantly just watching stuff from like Hong Kong or South Korea or Japan. And then my wife, she's the only person I that's near. So I'm like, like, did you hear about this movie? And oh, right. you gotta hear about this, <laughs> this shot and this. And she's like, I don't, I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> I don't care. Stop. Yeah. yeah. As far as international cinema goes, uh, my favorite is easily Asian cinema, probably specifically Japanese, if I'm honest. Yeah. But just all Asian cinemas. There's an energy to so much of it that is just kind of unparalleled just the craft of it all is so remarkable yeah well thanks so much yeah. pat uh, we uh, appreciate you coming on and talking about this one with us so where can we find you uh, if you've got things to plug or whatever plug away oh, gosh. and i don't know exactly when this is gonna go live so you know hey I mean, first of all, thank you for having me. This was really great. I'm gl- uh, glad to have done this. Um, I've got a, a piece that I, I don't know when these are coming out, but I've got a piece at Bloody Disgusting that should be coming out any day now. And a, yeah, and a, and a couple at Fangoria, one, one of which I'm like super duper excited for, for folks to read. It's about a movie that's like an all-timer for me. And it's Great. also looks at it from a depressing point of view, but, but also optimistic. So, um, there we yeah, go. Kind of like this movie. Will drop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those will be on my Twitter feed. If people follow me, I don't even know what my Twitter handle is. So, uh, <laughs> Oh yeah. You could, you can find Pat <laughs> at P Brennan 87. That's the one. So my name's Patrick Brennan, which is like what I don't know, like the second most common name in, in Ireland. So all my life finding like <laughs> email addresses, handles for anything has always been a, it's a burden. <laughs> Great. I will as always be looking forward to reading those pieces when they do come out. Um and Thank you. Uh, well, you. and uh, I highly recommend his work. Uh, it's very insightful oh, so and really powerful, often very personal as well something I really appreciate about the way you write. I really appreciate all that. Definitely. Thank you. And where can we find us? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Michelle in Agen. And you can find me at Brian waves 42. And you can find the show at movie life pod and remember to rate and review on Apple podcasts and Spotify and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Come by and talk to us anytime. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. All right. Well, again, thanks to our guest, uh, Mr. Pat Thank Brennan. you so much. It's great to have you on. Thank you. You betcha. And Michelle, what are we going to do? We will see you all next time. Bye. Bye.
Sweet.